the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We speak with... A woman whose husband has been a guest on this program a number of times down through the years. Uh, Steve Hayner, of course, has uh, for a long time been the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He also was the uh, president emeritus of Columbia Theological Seminary. You might have heard that um, earlier this year, Steve passed away at the age of 66 after a, a short and um, a pretty intensive battle with pancreatic cancer. His journey through all of this, uh, we talk a lot about uh, living gracefully. Steve and Cheryl Hayner, I think, tonight will help us understand how to die gracefully. They share their story in the new book called Joy in the Journey, Finding Abundance in the Shadow of Death. And Cheryl, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. No, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. My, my condolences to you, and uh, we appreciate you taking time to, uh, uh, to really walk us through this journey and the lessons that, that you learned standing side by side with your husband through this challenging experience, an experience that, that frankly, is, is a part of normative life. I mean, there's, there's, there's birth, then we live life, and then eventually we go home to be with the Lord. But a lot of Christians, I think a lot of people in general, just struggle with this idea. I guess it, it's, it's the finality of it all, I suppose. It, it's, it's the fear of, for some facing the unknown, even when we as believers know the end of the story and we know in whom we have believed and we are certain that he is able. And yet, for a lot of people, there's still a great sense of fear and mystery about this process called death. I think that's true. And I think part of the problem is that we there are so many unknowns in what the journey is going to look like leading up to it, that uh, the actual actually dying is is not as concerning as is the potential suffering or um, difficulty that often people go through on that journey. So um, it really is, it's something that I think we aren't very prepared for either to talk about. We don't have language, we don't have vocabulary for it. Tell us um, about Steve's journey. I understand that it was um, long about Easter of a year ago in 2014 that he was first diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Right, he was. Um, it was Easter weekend, actually, when he started feeling ill. And within three or four days, we had uh, Steve had gone through various tests and doctor's appointments and was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And then that began a long journey, first of deciding if it was um, that they could operate on and remove the tumor or if the next step was going to be chemo, which indeed it was. So that, that um, began uh, uh, probably 
most intense summer we've ever lived through the process of chemo. This turned out to be in a very aggressive form of pancreatic cancer. Um, at, at what point in this, and I know in the early stages of this, it's doctor's appointments and MRIs and CAT scans and all of this right. going on, and, and so much of it just seems to be about making the next doctor's appointment and getting there and then being prepared for the next one, and the entirety of your life sort of resol- revolves around all of this. But at what, what stage in this process did it become evident that this was going to be not just a battle of, of facing the cancer, addressing it, and moving on with life, but instead facing the cancer head on and understanding that it meant that Steve's life would be cut short. At what point did that happen? Well, you know, when we went home, even those first days, and looked at the statistics as we read it on the internet, um, the statistics are really poor for pancreatic cancer because it's so hard to diagnose. So often it has already metastasized or spread to other organs by the time it's discovered. So we were pretty clear that this was that ultimately Steve was going to die from this. Um, what we weren't sure about was how long that would be. And um, I must say that uh, when Steve was diagnosed in April and then didn't die till January, which gave us nine um, good months with him, I'm I'm so grateful for those. But we had several friends who were diagnosed after Steve and died within six weeks to two months. So it's um, it's a very vigorous. Um, cancer and so we we knew early on that we were facing death we just didn't know when the two of you as husband and wife you've got three kids together you've been involved in ministry together for many many years how does that conversation go um when when you you sit down and there's a dialogue after you've met with the doctor and there's a sense that this may not turn out the way we pray that it will hope that it will um how do you go about having that conversation well, it's not an easy conversation, as you can imagine. Um, I think one of the things that was so wonderful was that we had people around us who could help us with that conversation. Sometimes it's a hard one to just have the two, you know, to have two people having it. But as we were surrounded by really close friends and family, it helped us in that conversation. Um, I, I also think that we had really been prepared for this, in a sense, all our lives for this moment. And I had a great sense that um, the Lord was was going to take care of both of us and then when Steve died of me and I think that was that made it easier to have the conversation because of course Steve felt terrible about um, leaving not only for his sake but for mine and for our family's um, sake and so uh, it's not easy but there's something about having to face it that's really helpful too Um, and part of it was to recognize that we needed to do some things to get ready um, both just with our lives and in the conversations we had, we needed to think carefully about what could be the last months. At what point did you make the decision together to to be public about this? And I should mention for listeners that, that early on in this experience, um, a, an online journal was created that that essentially gave uh, your friends and family members and those involved with you that knew you through uh, church ministry and, and whatnot uh, a glimpse into um, not just the day-to-day progress report in terms of Steve's overall health, but also a glimpse into what was going on in, in your heart and your mind and his as well. Why, why did you decide to go public with something like that? Well, the, um, what, we, what we had decided to do was to use this forum. Uh, we use the CaringBridge site. Um, to um, keep our friends and family uh, up to date on what was happening. And it, it beca- we, we started it because we didn't want to be answering individual emails all the time or phone calls. Um, and so we began this and, and decided um, 
early on. I mean, that was right right away when we decided to do this. I think the first entry is in early May, actually, maybe late April, um, just as a means of communication. And what surprised us was that um, our friends and family would begin to forward it to someone else, and then that person in turn would come and visit the site. And so pretty soon it took on a life of its own. Um, it wasn't just a medical update because we found that one of the things that was happening was that we were learning so much in the process or thinking about so much or struggling with so much. So those became um, part of the journal as well. And I think that that's where people said um, they drew some encouragement. So it was, it was as surprising to us um, as, you know, the story of the little boy who gave Jesus his lunch when there were 5,000 um, hungry people and Jesus took it and fed the thousands. And it feels like that's kind of what happened as we gave this journal to Jesus. Kind of sort of taking this and multiplying out in terms of both the insights and the blessings and, and aptly even the title of the book, Joy in the Journey, I think right. really depicts what we as Christians find in and through an experience like this. I mean, um, everyone who has dealt with the loss of a loved one uh, knows what grieving is about, knows what the sense of loss is about. Um, but there is an important distinction, I think, from a, a Christian perspective in that those that grieve um, outside of the understanding of the promises of God God and the kingdom of God and his promises in his word, they grieve without hope. And yet we as believers can grieve with hope, in hope, and cradled in that hope of the promises that we are given um, throughout Scripture. And in that hope, we find joy. A look at joy in the journey, finding abundance in the shadow of death. Cheryl Hayner is with us tonight. We'll take a brief time out. Come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with Cheryl Hayner. Uh, Cheryl is the wife of Steve Hayner, who um, many of you no doubt know was for many, many years the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He also served as a president emeritus of Columbia Theological Seminary. And, and for a while, you guys were in ministry up there at the University Presbyterian Church. In fact, I just happened to notice that uh, Mark Laberton, uh, formerly of First Presbyterian Church here in Berkeley, uh, writes the foreword to your book. And I think if, if, my, if I don't have my, my schedule or my dates mixed up here, um, uh, Cheryl, you guys might have been in service uh, up there at about the time that uh, um, that uh, Earl was up in, in ministry there. Well, we actually left a little ahead of Earl, but um, yes, we were there when Bruce Larson was there in um, at University Press in Seattle. So those were wonderful years. We left in 1988 to go to uh, InterVarsity. Ah, got it. And Earl Palmer, by the way, for listeners of the Bay Area that uh, remember Dr. Palmer's ministry here on KFAX, associated with uh, First Presbyterian Church for many years. We're discussing uh, the experience that um, Cheryl and her family went through. Um, Steve had been diagnosed with aggressive pancreatic cancer in uh, April of last year and uh, passed away in January of this year. Their journey detailed inside the pages of a book that's based on uh, the journaling that they did online, essentially as a way of keeping friends and family apprised of um, Steve's challenges and progress. And, of course, many aspects that, that the both of you share um, on the website and inside the book are, are, are intimate in terms of sharing how you're thinking and feeling. Talk to us about sort of the process of all of this. Do you, do you kind of tend to go through waves when you're in this experience, um, Cheryl, in the sense that one minute you're, you're very hopeful that God is going to come in with an answer and a solution and a miracle will be wrought, and the next minute the sense of maybe despair and wondering whether or not God's even listening? Do you go through those experiences? Oh, I think so. I think everybody does. Um, it's really an up-and-down journey. 
But I think one of the things that, that um, both Steve and I felt so strongly about and really encouraged each other with was that this was a one-day-at-a-time journey. Mm. And so it's um, we found it was really fruitless to look ahead, even a week or two, um, just to wonder what was ahead. And so really focused during that time that, on the fact that God had given us today. And so what did it mean to live faithfully for that day and to look for the glimpses of God's grace, which were, you know, if you look for them, they're there. Um, so I, I, I think that that was helpful. And the, the goodness of going through a journey like this is that when one of us was up, the other one was, or one of us was down, the other one was usually up. We could encourage each other that way. Do you find, too, that these experiences, I mean, again, we all understand that we, we come into this earth with an expiration date. While we don't know what that date is, we understand that it is soon coming. Should should Christ tarry, we're all going to eventually go through this experience. And yet, I think maybe there's additional gravitas added to the, the, the really important things in life. When you have that sense that that eventual day may be sooner than later, uh, does it change the way you, you look at life events? If, for example, I, I note that during the midst of all of this, Steve celebrated his 66th birthday. Right. You had your fifth grandchild um, in the midst of this experience. Um, Christmas time, there must have been a sense uh, in December of last year that it would be likely your, your last Christmas together. Do those things suddenly take on greater sense of, of breadth and depth and significance as you go through something like this? I think so. I think so. They, um, the times of celebration become um, much more poignant and uh and I mean, and sometimes that's a problem. We can we can put too much power. I know that he was so anxious. He writes about how disappointed he was at first on Christmas Eve because it felt like he was the only one trying to make it really special, which um, obviously wasn't exactly true. But that was what he felt. And um, so you, sometimes it's that sense of we've got to make this right. We've got to do it right. Um, when instead we began to learn, no, you just got to live through it and be grateful for what's there. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, don't don't overthink it, and mm-hmm. yet give it that sense of of, um, of importance that it deserves. Because you know the, that you that you forgot to put out the trash becomes a lot less significant uh, right. up against the other important things in life. When you really begin to to weigh um, the the shortness of our experience here on Earth, right? And, and Steve used to um, use a phrase often called "living in light of eternity," and we he would talk to our kids, you know, when something was happening to them, um, as they were growing up, it was, so what, what is its significant in light, significance in light of eternity? And often when, when you look at an individual um, event or an experience and then look at it against the, um, the eons of eternity, it becomes very small. So part of it is just keeping that perspective in mind that, um, that we really are, we are, um, we are terminal and yet we are invited into eternal life and into this eternity with God. And so that also helps um, with the... to not give things too much weight, I think. It's interesting, though, because it, it, it gives a sense of, of gravitas and importance to, to two aspects of this dialogue. One is to um, give greater value to those things which have value mm-hmm. while here on Earth in life, and then understand that even in light of that, that against the backdrop of all of eternity, this is just a, this is just a speck in time. I, I've always been fascinated by the notion, and you'll see this in any cemetery that you walk into. You'll look at a tombstone, you'll see a date of birth, 
a date of death, and be it 10 years apart or 100 years apart, everything in between is summarized by a single straight line, just a dash. Mm-hmm. And I thought how interesting that is that our, that our, our life here on Earth is, is summed up in a dash. And I think that gives also a sense that, that when it's compared to eternity, uh, this is really just a fleeting moment in time. Yeah, I think that's true. On, on the other hand, there's also that sense that every moment is a precious gift from God. And so whether we were in the, um, the infusion room with where Steve was receiving chemotherapy and having conversation with a nurse who would take care of him or with another patient, I, you know, I think, I think the invitation is to live more fully into each moment because um, it's true that, that life is, is, you know, it's a, a breath. It just is a passing moment compared with all of eternity. But at the same time, God gives us this privilege of living right in the moment. And I, and I think that's where some of this joy comes to. There's, there's definitely joy in the hope we, we have in Jesus Christ and in that the um, kind of confidence we can have that, that, that nothing will ever separate us from God's love. And I think, too, but that sense of, of living life intentionally. Um, book author that we're all familiar with might say purposefully. Right, um, exactly. and, 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 and doing things to build memories as well. My, my father passed away, in fact, uh, three days before Steve died. Oh, that's, I'm so sorry. My, my, my dad passed away in uh, January, January the 28th. He, he went mm-hmm. in the fashion that I think, Sharon, we would all like to sign up for. He went to sleep Tuesday night and simply never woke up Wednesday morning. Wow. That's a lovely gift. And it, and it is a tremendous gift. In the moment, you're, you're afraid and terrified and you're angry and upset and confused and all of that. And when you then take a step back and say, wow. God, what a beautiful mm-hmm. gift. And then I think about the fact that as he was getting older, he, he passed away at 85 and a half. In fact, his, speaking of another coincidence, um, Steve's birthday and my father's birthday are exactly two days apart. Wow. My dad's wow. the 25th of June. And uh-huh. we found as he was getting older and in the last four or five years beginning to slow down, uh, you begin to recognize and you start to say, well, you know, when, you're, when you've when you lived a, a good 80 years, um, every day becomes precious. Let's do what we can to live intentionally. Let's build memories. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you find that um, the smaller things are not significant at all. And those things that maybe heretofore you just kind of didn't, didn't give a second thought to now become important in that memory-building process. Um, but I think the, the biggest joy in all of this is is, is to realize that through it all, um, even in that sense of, of the finality of death and so much of the, of the um, ceremony, I think, that, that goes into what we do with a final service, the final resting place. Um, we, we, we tend to treat death with a sense of finality, and yet, from a Christian perspective, and I even said this from the pulpit at my father's memorial service, from a Christian perspective, um, this is not goodbye. This is just so long for now. That's the promise that we have. That's the hope that we have as believers that I think, um, Cheryl, is what carries us through these experiences. No, oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. Yes, I, um, uh, I've lost my, my train of thought. Um, one of the, one of the things that, that I, Steve said often and what I, um, wrote the, the afternoon that Steve died as I wrote the Caring Bridge blog for that day was that Steve's life was swallowed up by life, that death is that tiny door but it's really a question of moving from 
life with a small L to life with a capital L, um, that, that life in Christ. So it, it is, um, it, there is a sense of finality in that we, that, um, things are no longer the same. But you're right, it's, um, there's that hope of seeing him again and, um, seeing your father and those that we love. And I like that perspective that you lead to this because we know that, that death was swallowed up when Jesus overcame the grave, when he rose again on that third day. And so you're right, we think about from, from the, the, the very um, finite sense that life gets swallowed up by death. Mm-hmm. And yet the reality is for believers, and I want everyone listening right now to really capture this, whether you're kind of on the fence or you happen to dial by this program and you're not particularly predisposed to Christianity, maybe you're kind of looking into some things, maybe you have very little interest at all and just thought, what are these people talking about? Let me listen for a moment. There is, there is the uniqueness singularly within the Christian experience from a biblical perspective where we as Christians truly don't see death singularly as a finality or death is something that swallows up life, but rather that, that life, as you point out, Cheryl, small L, gets swallowed up by life, big L. Right, right. And therein lies the hope that we have, not only in terms of seeing our loved ones once again, but understanding that Steve's life, my father's life, didn't just simply end. It changed. It was transformed in a twinkling of an eye and moving from the the finiteness of what we experience of life here on earth to the infinite, the internal side of glory. And being in the very presence of God, Paul reminds us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, And just imagine what that experience will be like eventually for all of us who find life in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's exactly right. I, I um, I'm I'm so grateful for that. You know, many people were praying. We were praying for healing for Steve on this earth, and with absolute confidence that God could do that. Um, but what really happened was, as he as he was swallowed up in life, Steve experienced healing in a way that is way beyond what he would have experienced on earth. So there's also that kind of hope that there's no more pain and there's no more illness and no more tears and that's um that's really comforting for those of us who are left behind we we encourage steve at the very end just to to um to let go and um and rest in jesus arms because he was in a place where he was in pain and his body was decaying and so life is life at the capital l is whole and wonderful the place of shalom we're going to take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation visiting today with Cheryl Hainer. The book is called Joy in the Journey, Finding Abundance in the Shadow of Death. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with Cheryl Hainer. Her book is a series of notes from journaling that both she and her husband Steve put together um, beginning not long after Steve Hainer's diagnosis with pancreatic cancer in April of last year. And of course, you you probably recognize the name Steve Hainer. He's been a guest on this show uh, during the time when he was the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, Steve was diagnosed, as we mentioned, along about um, Easter time last year with a very aggressive form of pancreatic cancer and went home to be with the 
Lord at the end of January of this year. And um, Steve, along the way, along with Cheryl, um, journaled and shared in an online journal, really as a means of keeping friends and family abreast of what was going on uh, in uh, in Steve's journey. And it's ultimately uh, produced a book that shares some incredible insights, um, most importantly into uh, the joy, the hope that we have as Christians, that even through the darkness of this, even through the, the, the shadow of death, uh, that we can find abundance and ultimately find joy, as the title of the new book, Joy in the Journey, suggests. Um, one of the things that I've found overwhelmingly encouraging uh, when my dad passed away uh, in the end of January of this year um, was those that came alongside and were a part of what you referred to in the book as the ministry of being with. And it's amazing because sometimes people will say, well, I, I don't know what to say, or they're searching for the right words to say when at the end of the day, those of us that are grieving a loss or going through the journey of watching a loved one pass, um, sometimes all we need is just to experience that ministry of being with. Well, I think that's so true. We, sh- we certainly experienced that, especially the last week of Steve's life, um, as our children had come from distances to be with us and uh, friends gathered downstairs um, through most of those last five days. It was amazing what a gift that was, um, which shouldn't be terribly surprising because Jesus came um, as Emmanuel, God with us. God, God is all about being with and calls us into that. But it is, it's a huge gift. It was a wonderful gift. You know, there's something also that's kind of inexplicable about all of this, at least in terms of being able to, to formulate words, uh, Cheryl. In, in, in my case, uh, and no doubt in yours as well, there's, there's a tremendous sense of loss, um, particularly in my case, losing a parent. Um, I, I woke up a day or two after my dad had died and thought, well, I'm, I'm halfway to being an orphan. I don't know what, where that thought mm-hmm. came from, but I yeah. had that, that feeling that, gee, this, this connectiveness that I had, part of my identity, feel as if, as if it passed uh, on the 28th of January. And yet in that process and through that, that grieving and, and the moments of getting wrapped up in the process of, okay, you have to go make the funeral arrangements and, and you're, you're incredibly busy for the first week. And then after the final uh, arrangements have been made and memorial services now behind you, you kind of collapse, uh, you know, like an emotional rag. And yet what I find amazing through both those early days and in through today as I've passed through his birthday in June and Father's Day a, a week later and mm-hmm. things of that sort, that mm-hmm. God in his overwhelming grace makes his comforting presence felt, sometimes in little tiny ways, sometimes in huge ways. But without failure all the time, he makes his comforting, reassuring presence felt. And, you know, again, that harkens back to just that, that notion that what, what a joy that we have as believers, that in the midst of adversity, in the midst of grieving and in loss, we know that the Comforter, our Holy Spirit, is there for us to guide us and bring us through. No, that's exactly right. I, I think often of that passage in Second Corinthians 1 where... Uh, Paul talks about the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our adversity so that we, in turn, can comfort others. And we've we've certainly experienced that comfort from God, sometimes through another person or through Scripture or through a song. Um, but it's been really interesting as the time has gone by uh, since Steve's death, how the many conversations that 
that I am in or our kids are in where the very thing that was of comfort to us becomes something with which we can comfort another person. Mm-hmm. It's really quite amazing. In that process, uh, share, share with our listeners, uh, Cheryl, maybe an example or two. Um, I, I, either since Steve passed or in the midst of that of that painful journey in dealing with the chemotherapy and the after side effects of all of that. My mother's been a cancer patient for about 14 years now, and, mm-hmm. and boy, you know, dealing with everything from loss of appetite to everything she eats tastes like metal to, uh, you know, losing your hair, your dignity, all of that. Um, was there one or two experiences that you can share with our listeners where God just showed up in a, in a really amazing way? Well, I, I think there are a variety of places. One of them was um, when, you know, taking care of, of Steve and working with him with his meds, and um, it's, we're, you just don't know what you're doing. And um, I, I remember one night just, just not knowing if, if his meds were working, if I should give him something else. Um, and it was at that moment that um, I was able to talk to the cancer uh, talk line at, at Emory University where Steve was being felt and you know it was as if God was on the other end giving me reassurance through this nurse and just, we, she kind of finessed the medication that Steve had and it was such a clear picture to me that oh God is present I'm so 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 grateful for that um, since since um, Steve's death we've experienced that a lot in fact even today I had coffee with a young woman this morning whose mother is is um, suffering through chemotherapy in a very serious and aggressive form of cancer. And um, I was just reminded that as God showed up for for us, God was showing up for this young woman and with her mother. Um, Our son has a colleague whose mother has been diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer, and and he was able to bring encouragement to this buddy of his today um, because of the ways that God showed up in our experience with Steve. So there are... Sometimes you look for it. I think it's this whole thing of grace that it's an adventure. Um, and we used to think we talked about this. Where will grace show up today? And and that was often um, it was sometimes in a card that we would receive, or a phone call, or um, a song that we would hear, um, some piece of good news. It was um, it's very evident that uh, that phrase we we hear from time to time, playing it forward comes mm-hmm. to mind as we experience for ourselves in the midst of our loss or our pain the grace of God and sometimes I think in the middle of that it's it's very normative in the fleshy uh, realm in which we live and think to say God why are you putting me through this or why are you putting right. Steve through this or or Lord you know why 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 not why not allow as Jesus said why not allow this cup pass from me right. and yet as we go through that and then God meets us in a big way and we experience yet another incredible way and experience uh, his his grace in an intimate way we then see manners in which we can play that grace forward in in sharing with others um a glimpse into god's love and god's grace and the manner in which suddenly as we have been comforted we are able to provide comfort for others well and i also think we draw on our memory bank of god's faithfulness too that um one of the things that at the times, sometimes some of the dark times when we just thought, oh, Lord, where are you? We looked back on other experiences in our lives where God was faithful, where we thought it was um, that we were at the end and yet God showed up. And so I think it's that remembering, which is all, it's the message in the Old Testament over and over, remember, remember, remember what God has done. And that in turn would give us um, encouragement for the experiences we were having. 
And I think then, too, for, for young believers, this can be a point of tremendous encouragement because as you are in the midst of newly experiencing your faith um, and learning to go deeper in God's Word, deeper in your relationship with the Lord, uh, there may be times of doubt and confusion and times when you wonder whether or not God will show up, let alone is God even hearing your cry or hearing your prayer. And then suddenly you're reminded, well, we read in the Scripture, so we have to stand on God's promises. The older you get, the longer you are in that faith walk, you begin to have, as I think you're suggesting, Cheryl, these experiences that add to. So you can not only say, well, I know what God's promises are and his faithfulness is because Scripture tells me, quote passage in verse here, but then you can also hearken back to these experiences where that Scripture played out in your life. And now you build one on top of the other and top of the other. And so suddenly you find yourself saying, well, I know God is faithful and just and enormously loving in demonstrating that unmerited favor, not only because I've read about it and I believe it, but because I've experienced it. And I also think that's why we need to be in community if we're going through these experiences, because even Steve would say there were times when he didn't, he just didn't have enough faith to get him through. But he knew that I was there, that dear friends were there, that family members were there, um, just like the friends who carried the paralytic to Jesus, that Sometimes it's our responsibility and privilege to carry the one who's ill to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And that becomes a a real moment of grace, too, where, um, you know, you just don't have it all together and you struggle. And that's certainly evident in our writing, too, that there were those days we think, oh, this is such a waste. How could, how God could you allow this? And yet there were those around us who kept reminding us of God's grace. And it's amazing because in those moments when our faith falters, then, as God, as you say, brings individuals and circumstances into our life or remembrances of events or scriptures that help to restore and renew and strengthen that faith, then, as we look back on it, on the timeline, we can see exactly way, the way in which, at the moments of which our faith faltered, God was faithful <laughs> In, right, in sending exactly. someone to, to, to carry us through. I, I think of, you know, the, the, the even moments of, of the picture of Christ faltering and stumbling on the way to Golgotha. Mm-hmm. And yet, along comes a man who was then sent to carry the cross on his behalf, and then right. ultimately cross, Christ dying on that cross on our behalf. Right. Um, his, right. his faithfulness is pretty incredible, isn't it? It's amazing, absolutely amazing. And it's, I think we see it all the more strongly when we recognize our weakness. You know, that picture of Paul saying, God's strength is made perfect mm-hmm. in my weakness is uh, quite powerful for me. I think the the day that I received the telephone call and ran to my folks' house and went into the room and saw my father. He died at home, of course, died in his sleep. Mm -hmm. And I first was stunned. And I think the very first prayer I said is, Lord, this is more than I can handle. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. just in that moment, in that admission, when we say that's, I'm out of resources, (laughs) Lord, I've got to lean upon you. That then God will be there. He will show up, won't he? Right. Oh, I so believe that because I, I think, you know, people would say to me, oh, we don't have faith that's as strong as yours or as faith that's as strong as Steve's. But really, that's, that's not the issue at all. The fact is that I have faith in a God who is so strong, um, which, which kind of lets you off the hook, too. It's not that we just try harder and harder to get it right. Um, God is faithful no matter what. 
We sure appreciate the time tonight, uh, Cheryl, and ex- sharing your experience and Steve's experience. Uh, and for listeners that would like to go deeper, I, I think you'll find this book encouraging no matter what stage or what challenges you might be facing in life, whether you're on the the other side of this and still working through the grieving process, whether you're right in the midst of this with a, uh, a diagnosis of whose outcome may indeed be terminal and you're wondering when will God show up because it doesn't seem as if he has yet, I think you'll find not only much comfort but ultimately much much joy inside the pages of this new book, Joy in the Journey, Finding Abundance in the Shadow of Death. And again, written by Steve and Cheryl Hainer, the book available through InterVarsity Press at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through um, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And uh, Cheryl, again, I want to thank you so much uh, tonight for sharing uh, candidly uh, both your pain and, and your joy as well. Thank you, Craig. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks again. All right. Again, the book called Joy in the Journey, Finding Abundance in the Shadow of Death by Steve and Cheryl Hainer. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, as we talk about politics today and part of the electoral process underway, a lot of it is indicative of what makes this country so great, so unique as it has been for over 250 plus years of its existence. And you often have to wonder, as I do myself, when I see oddities come up. Uh, within the life of our nation, uh, extra constitutional things, uh, debates over things that um, that quite frankly have no business being passed into law, uh, you know, such as the passage of this new um, defense authorization bill that grants the president the power, the authority to declare the United States and its territories a battlefield and then to arrest people that are, are challenged with, not even charged with, just simply allegedly having participated in some kind of a terrorist act without defining what we mean by a terrorist act and to then discharge the military to then go and arrest them and jail them uh, without having been charged of committing any kind of a crime without giving the opportunity to have an attorney or make the first telephone call or or a speedy trial any of that uh, because of course when you when you do this as an act of war it comes under an entirely different set of rules that are extra constitutional. And I wonder to myself quite frequently if our founding fathers could come back and see America today in contrast with what it was when some of them, in fact, literally gave of their lives uh, for the freedoms that we have enjoyed to this point, would they even recognize our nation today? And, and one of the interesting founding fathers that I think would have perhaps one of the biggest bones of contentions uh, to pick with the nation uh, that he fought for would be that of Patrick Henry. Remember, of course, most notably as one of the first governors of Virginia, give me liberty or give me death, that amazing speech uh, that... Um, that he gave. Well, uh, would he, Patrick Henry, know America today? We get some insights now from author Dr. Thomas Kidd. He is Associate Professor of History at Baylor University, winner of a 2006-07 National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, and a leading historian of the American Revolution. And Dr. Kidd, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. When we talk about some of these things going on in our nation today and and some of the disputes that that raise serious questions about their constitutionality, I have to wonder if if, uh, by by miracle we could teleport Patrick Henry into the 21st century here and he could walk around, read our newspapers, uh, see what goes on in our state houses, uh, sit into a session or two of of Congress, read through uh, the roll call. Do you think he would recognize this as the very country that he fought for? No, I, I think he would be appalled, <laughs> I, I, and I think most of the, the founders would not recognize what America has become. Maybe Alexander Hamilton, uh, he, he seemed to be uh, 
uh, one of the only ones who had some aspirations for America to become uh, uh, what Patrick Henry would have called an almost imperial kind of nation. Uh, that Hamilton envisioned with the Constitution for the for America to become at least a great commercial power, uh, and that the government would would promote the the interests of, of uh, big business and so forth. Uh, but the size and scope uh, at, at every turn, from uh, the welfare state uh, to the uh, the military and the kind of military exploits we've gotten involved with, war on terror and everything. I think that most of the founders, but especially people like Patrick Henry, would have a hard time recognizing what we've become. What I found interesting about your new book, Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots, and again, this is newly published by Basic Books and available through Amazon.com, that he, he was someone who, in fact, had great concerns to the point of, to the point of actually opposing the, the ratification of the Constitution because he feared that it would endanger the rights of the states as well as the freedoms of individuals. Explain that to me. Well, that's right, and I think this is one of the reasons why Patrick Henry is not better known uh, and that he is obscured by people like James Madison, because I think people love uh, give me liberty or give me death, but then they think, well, what went wrong with him? <laughs> why, why did he oppose the Constitution? But I think for Henry, it's, it's very easy to understand and explain. He believed that the American Revolution was a revolution against centralized national government power, in the case of Britain, uh, and their unjust tax policies against the colonists. And so he thought that here we are uh, 10 or 11 years later, uh, and Americans are trying to put a new, more centralized uh, national government over themselves. Uh, they already had a constitution, the Articles of Confederation, which was a very state-based kind of system with a very weak national government. And uh, to Henry, that was done on purpose. It wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. It was a different kind of government from what they had under Britain, and he thought that despite there was, there was a number of problems going on economically and so forth, but he thought that the answer is not creating a great new uh, national government, because that's going back to what we had under Britain. Sort of this concept of the power comes from the people up, as opposed to being bestowed to the people from, from above. Right, and, and he believed that uh, political power is inherently dangerous, uh, which all the founders believed that, but, but he believed that because of human nature, uh, which he saw as uh, inherently uh, sinful and grasping for uh, other people's uh, property and uh, grasping for power. So he thought that the best kind of government was a, was a very decentralized government in which uh, no part of the government could, could have too much power. And so you had a weak national government, uh, stronger uh, you know, individual state governments and local governments, so that uh, even if one state uh, went awry, uh, it wouldn't take down the whole uh, nation, and so he much preferred that over uh, Madison and Hamilton's kind of system of a, of a stronger national government. And and you know, people know that the, the anti-federalists. Many people know the anti-federalists were the ones calling for a bill of rights, and that certainly was part of Patrick Henry's concern. The original Constitution didn't have a bill of rights, but it was more fundamental for Patrick Henry. For instance, he wanted to take away the national government's power to tax and leave that only to the states. Uh, and what was the revolution about? It was about unjust taxes by Brit the British. And Henry thought, why should we go back and give our national government the power to tax again? He, he would look at things such as the, the amendment of the Constitution in 1913, that, by the way, was never properly ratified, uh, and would probably be uh, much in shock, uh, assuming that we're kind of reassembling the monarchy here. In the monarchy here. Right, and, and this is the, the income tax uh, amendment, which, which is a significant departure uh, from the original 
intent of the, of the Constitution, but it is clear that the national government under the Constitution uh, at least has a, a right to uh, a, sort of a property-based kind of uh, tax system and various imposts and, and this kind of thing, which they leaned on in the early republic. And even that, Henry thought, uh, was dangerous. He, he said, look, if you give a national government like this the unlimited right to tax and spend, uh, maybe it will stay small for a while, but eventually it will become a monster, and we won't be able to control its size and its debt. Uh, and that uh, that warning sounds a lot like what we've become today. Boy, isn't that the truth. If you've just joined us, our conversation tonight with Dr. Thomas Kidd, a look at Patrick Henry, first among patriots. It's an interesting glimpse, I think, and it ought to serve as a major warning for all of us, that as we see the inconsistencies, the unraveling, so to speak, in Washington, D.C., whether we're talking about out-of-control spending, out-of-control powers that are being uh, captured by the president or by Congress or, or quite frankly, legislation by the bench uh, at the judicial level, uh, this ought to be a sobering wake-up call that, that one of the key founders, one of the principles involved in the creation of our nation in the 1700s, uh, would look at where we're at today and would probably shake his head in absolute total disgust. When we come back, we're also going to talk about different aspects of this, including Patrick Henry's very strong commitment to freedom of faith, freedom of religion, and where that is at today. Our conversation with Dr. Thomas Kidd continues as we look at Patrick Henry here on this edition of Lifeline.